Hello, I'm Charlie Kehoe, and welcome to my multi-genre podcast for Honors English 2. In this podcast, I'm going to be highlighting most of the noteworthy differences between the USA and reality in the United States and Ben Winter's alternate history novel, Underground Airlines. The general premise of the book is that slavery is still legal in 14 states in modern day, and the book is full of action and sci-fi elements. Rather than focus on the plot, though, I'm going to deep dive into the complex list of historical, political, geographical, and economic differences, as these are very fundamental parts of the story, and they're very spread throughout the book, so I feel like it's important to highlight them all together so the reader can get a better understanding of what America looks like in the story. So let's get started. The spot where the timeline of Underground Airlines splits from our modern timeline is February 14th, 1861. In the book's timeline, Abraham Lincoln is shot in Indianapolis just weeks before he is to take office as president. His death is viewed by the public as a national tragedy, and he's given the title Abe the Martyr. In his pocket, they find a speech he was planning on reading that day that said, quote, I hope that we may meet again under one flag of union, end quote, page 75. This series of events prompted the southern states who had begun forming the Confederacy to abandon their new government and return their politicians to Congress in the spring of 1861. In the intense negotiations that followed, six constitutional amendments and four resolutions were passed that focused on, quote, balancing northern sentiment and southern interest, northern principles, and southern economic welfare, end quote, page 75. The most important part was Constitutional Amendment 18, which states, quote, no future amendment of the Constitution shall affect the preceding five articles, end quote, page 75. In short, this means that slavery can survive forever unless the amendment is repealed. If legislation is passed banning or hindering slavery, the slave states can just take it to court and it will be declared unconstitutional and the laws will be repealed. Due to these new amendments and resolutions, the Civil War never occurs. Despite the amendments, the legality of slavery is a decision left to individual states. Over time, all of the states abolished slavery except for Louisiana, Mississippi, Alabama, and Carolina. Now just to clarify, in this timeline, North and South Carolina aren't different states. Instead, they're just one state known as Carolina. These four are the only slave states left when the book reaches its start, which is modern day. The four states are very pro-slavery and would lose their economies which are already very delicate if slavery was abolished. So they've adopted a hardcore pro-slavery stance on everything. It's the center of their society. They fiercely defend themselves in all court cases regarding slavery, big or small, and large slaveholding corporations rule the states with an iron fist. This earns them the nickname, the Hard Four. Over time, as slavery evolves in the United States, the legality and regulation of slavery develops a complex system of bureaucracy, laws, and agencies. First of all, a set of databases are established, containing and organizing the information about and the identities of slaves. The most important two are called NCIC and Torchlight. NCIC is a national warrant database, which is fueled by local versions of the same database. For example, the NCIC database of Indianapolis is called IDACS, and it's connected to and can view NCIC, as well as many other databases, such as the Marshall's Fugitive Database. Torchlight, on the other hand, is a database of dedicated to slaves, and it contains information and records on every birth, death, sale, injury, and escape of a slave. These databases also contain two very important pieces of information which are used to identify escaped slaves, slave pins and pigmentation taxonomy. 
Slave pins are a series of seven digits, and each slave across the nation has a number of the has a set number. For example, an escaped slave in the book has the pin number 78312-99. On the other hand, pigmentation taxonomy is a government-created system that classifies that classifies slaves' skin color using a series of numbers and cheesy titles. For example, the protagonist of the story has, quote, moderate charcoal brass highlights, number 41. And other examples of these descriptions include, quote, late summer honey, warm tone, number 76. And, quote, moderate pine, red tone, number 211. Lastly, and arguably most importantly, in 1793, the Fugitive Persons Act is passed. This law decrees that, quote, those who escape from the service are to be captured and returned anywhere they are found in the United States, slave state or free. Page 20. The law has been repeatedly updated and strengthened in 1850, 1861, 1875, and 1935. Most of these updates had to be passed to calm southern politicians and corporations who were upset over other issues, such as the end of slavery in Washington, D.C., or the creation of the Bureau of Labor Practices which was designed to keep companies in check and make sure they weren't abusing employee rights. These compromises in law reinforcements resulted in high fees for those who obstructed the law and generous legal protections for Southern marshals, which kept them from being challenged in court by the Northern prosecutors. All of these databases and identification factors helped the U.S. Marshals. U.S. Marshals are a branch of law enforcement that exists in real life, but in the book, their alternate purpose is to capture and return escaped slaves under the Fugitive Persons Act. These marshals have full access to these resources and even employ other escaped slaves to track, round up, and return runaways. These escaped slave field workers then report to desk job marshals who organize case files, give daily updates, and keep progress checks on each runaway slave case. This creates an organized ring of slave catchers controlled by the government rather than the private slave catchers seen in real U.S. history. Having access to government information and resources without competition from other groups, the marshals have created an insanely efficient process where a field worker is assigned to track and corner a singular slave, then a team swoops in and apprehends the escaped slave and returns them to the South. To prevent slaves from escaping, the Hard Four have even implemented a secure border fence stretching the entire length of the slave state free state borders, with checkpoints for all entrances and exits. They have also built an interstate highway all the way from Alabama to Georgia, through Georgia, to reach Carolina. Border checkpoints on, on the border fence require thorough scanning of all black people, slave or free, and subjects them to an invasive body search, and massive amounts of paperwork are needed to cross through the border with a black person in the car. The interstate between Carolina and Alabama, known as the Red Highway, allows the hard four to conduct trade without having to pass through free state regulations or laws. To guard their borders in the sky, the hard four have contracted the Air National Guard to protect their airspace. They are to patrol the entirety of the four states and are to shoot down intruder planes to prevent slaves from escaping the hard four. So here, as you can see, slavery is taken very seriously, and anyone who escapes is severely punished later if they're caught. Within the hard four, slavery has evolved from plantation farming to, mul to multi-million dollar corporations that own thousands of slaves. To put this in perspective, one company in the book, GGSI, Garments of the Greater South Incorporated, has a headquarters made up of three glass-walled skyscrapers sitting lordly over the parking lot, which is a quote from pages 249 and 250. 
These companies are comparable to the tech giants of our reality. Quote, a 24-hour operation, ultra-modern and ultra-efficient, end quote. Page 252. Except these companies employ slaves to do all the work, drastically reducing their labor costs. Slaves are kept in a campus containing living quarters, a few amenities that they are required to use, working quarters, and a train to take them from place to place. Their days are scheduled down to the minute. There's always a shift working the factories, no matter what time of day it is, and no matter if there's a holiday or a church service going on. In fact, the holidays and church services are divided into seven groupings, so only one-seventh of the population is not active in other activities. For example, there are, on the week of Christmas, there will be seven Christmases, one on each day of the week, each for one-seventh of the population. Same for Easter and church services. These companies have become extremely lucrative and successful as the lack of labor cost allows them to sell quality goods very cheap across the globe. Throughout this version of the United States history, there's always been significant opposition to slavery, both internally and internationally. Within the U.S., northern states, starting with Massachusetts, have passed clean hands laws, and these laws are eventually copied and passed on a federal level. This essentially means that companies wanting to do business in any state that labels itself as a clean hand state must comply with many rules and regulations that restrict the sale of produce goods from slave plantations. These laws are really popular across the North because they provide a sense of moral security for consumers who want nothing to do with slavery. In the early 20th century, Texas begins to become an abolitionist hotspot, and mass immigration of abolitionists from across the entire nation makes its way there. And eventually, this all comes to a head in 1964, when Texas decides to secede and form the Republic of Texas. This prompts a civil war, which lasts 11 years and results in no real change except for the establishment of the SEZ and contested sovereign status for the Republic of Texas, which acts like a country and functions like one, but does not have enough international recognition to be considered one or be a part of the United Nations. On the other hand, the United States keeps Texas a star on the flag and still lays claim to all of the oil fields in Texas as well as all of the land in Texas. They also create the Special Economic Zone, or SEZ, to protect its Gulf interests there. Now, similarly to the version of slavery we know in our history books, there are also lots of abolitionists working to try and get people out of slavery. Rather than the Underground Railroad, though, in modern times in the story, they're called the Underground Airlines. They parallel a lot of parts of the Underground Railroad in that they're very unorganized and it's a loose collaborative string of people who use their jobs and their resources to sm sneakily smuggle people across the border to Canada, which the most popular destination for people leaving slavery through the airlines is the suburbs of Montreal, which has such a large former slave population that it has been labeled as Little America. Slavery has also been met with a harsh international response. Nations like Canada, and previously the USSR, are open to taking escaped slaves, as seen by the formation of Little America. The most fam famous example in the book is the case of Jesse Owens. In this timeline, he was a slave boy who competed and won at Berlin 1836 Olympics, but he defected during the, to the USSR during the Games. He was then used as a pawn during the Cold War and was often tem televised slamming the horde capitalists and slavery and propaganda against the U.S. The North American Human Rights Association, based in Canada, is formed with the purpose of ensuring consumers that they aren't using slave labor-based goods. 
Similar, kind of similar to, similarly to Rotten Tomatoes with movies, the NAHRA certifies establishments and companies free of slave products. Meanwhile, across the Atlantic, the European consensus has been formed. I presume this is pretty similar to the EU, but the consensus is very much against America and probably doesn't have much diplomatic ties with them like it does in real life. The European consensus and its signatories have blocked most trade with the U.S. in protest of slavery existing. For example, you can't buy a car from Toyota, Subaru, or Nissan, and many other brands, because they're based in Japan, which is a European Commission signatory. Lastly, and most importantly, the United States is no longer a part of the United Nations. It was forced to withdraw in 1937 after increased international pressure to end slavery made it so they just couldn't put up with it anymore. They couldn't put up with the criticism, so they just decided to withdraw. To which the British, British said, quote, good riddance. This whole situation creates a massive economic disadvantage for the northern states. They can't trade with the outside world and can't profit from cheap southern labor sources. The northern cities struggle to keep economic sectors growing and constantly slide in and out of recessions. This gives an advantage to the south, which can benefit from northern industry and makes huge profits from the sale of cheap goods in developing countries. South is able to trade internationally as undeveloped countries most likely have less restrictions on slave-based goods and have a higher demand for southern products such as cotton compared to northern industrial products. Southern corporations even use these countries as stepping stones to illegally sell their goods in clean hand states. For example, Garments of the Greater South Incorporated sells their cotton shirts to Malaysia where they rebrand them and shuffled money around through four different countries and bank accounts. Then they import them, to, they re-import them to the U.S. and the North, and are able to sell cheap clothing in northern clean hand states for a huge profit, and no one's ever noticed this, even though it's hugely illegal. So to summarize, in this timeline, America is an unstable democracy plagued by internal, social, and economic problems. It's not the superpower we see in real life, and it swings in and out of recession repeatedly due to international activity. It also has presumably no diplomatic ties to Europe, East Asia, or the rest of the developed world due to, due to abolitionist sentiment there. So those are most of the noteworthy economic, political, historical, and geographical differences between America and underground airlines and America in reality. However, I've got three broad theories on how I think America could continue as a nation in this fictional timeline. This one I think is the least likely. Number one, Texas and the international community end slavery. Decades later, Texas eventually gets its international recognition and blooms into a democratic superpower. Other states tend to follow suit. The New England region and the Great Lakes region split due to a history and presence of abolitionism and proximity to Canada, possibly even joining Canada as a new province. Similarly to Texas, California seeds as well and grows to be, become a democratic state. With the federal government growing weaker and weaker, the U.S. doesn't have the resources to fight all of these regions and is forced to let them go and become independent states. As underdeveloped countries develop over time, they too place sanctions and restrictions on the U.S. as support within their communities forces politicians to abandon slavery. Eventually, this global pressure to abolish slavery forces them to remove the six constitutional amendments and four resolutions that made it legal. While the South puts up a fight politically, the rapidly failing economy forces them to concede and set free all enslaved people. Finally, America is able to grow economically again, 
America never really recovers its lost territory and never truly recovers from the economic consequences of keeping slavery legal for so long. And ultimately, it's forever frowned upon by the international community. Scenario number two, the hard forces cede and America flourishes. Decades later, the international and internal abolitionist pressure for the hard, pressure the hard for to secede permanently. The four become separate sovereign nations and create the DSC Deep South Compact under the 2047 Treaty of Charleston. This treaty binds the four nations together economically, militarily, and politically. It's essentially a combination of the EU and the NATO on a much smaller scale. The economies of the four nations rely solely on each other, and economic activity dies down within them, but they stay afloat and stabilize due to the DCS, keeping slavery alive. America, free from the burden of the South and slavery, grows into a much more stable and internationally accepted democracy. Texas eventually votes to rejoin the Union. The U.S. eventually decides not to try and get back the land of the hard four, as the public wants nothing to do with them anymore, and the nation is much more prosperous as a whole without them. Finally, the most likely scenario, Texas fails and nothing changes. While Texas is an initial success, its government grows into an authoritarian oligarchy of oil company officials and tycoons. As soon as the oil reserves start to run out, the nation erupts into anarchy as it has no economic stabilizer. The public is still staunchly abolitionist, and in a last-ditch effort, a congregation of publicly elected Texan delegates sends a petition to Mexico asking them to annex Texas so Texas won't have to return to the Union where slavery is still partially legal. Mexico, viewing Texas as a potentially prosperous region it once held on to, agrees and eventually Texas stabilizes and becomes an important economic asset of Mexico. But in America, not much changes. Hard force still dominate politics and economically keep the country afloat through trade with undeveloped countries, and internal and external abolitionist pressure has virtually no effect on the country. Thank you so much for listening to this podcast, and I hope you enjoyed listening to this recap of America's development and Ben Winter's fictional world of underground airlines. Thank you.